Welcome to another episode of the Secular Buddhism Podcast. This is episode number 148. I am your host, Noah Roshetta, and today I'm going to talk about the dance of life. Like always, keep in mind, you don't need to use what you learn from Buddhism to be a Buddhist. You can use what you learn to be a better whatever you already are. If you're interested in learning more about Buddhism, check out my book, No Nonsense Buddhism for Beginners on Amazon, or start with the first five episodes of this podcast. You can get to those first five episodes easily by visiting secularbuddhism.com and clicking on the Start Here link. If you're looking for a community to practice with or to interact with, consider becoming a patron and visiting secularbuddhism.com and clicking the link to join our community. I'll start out this podcast episode with a quote from Maya Angelou. She says, Everything in the universe has rhythm. Everything dances. I've been thinking a lot about dance this week. Perhaps first and foremost because dance is a very integral part of my life. My wife owns a dance studio. My kids all dance and dance classes. And this week we're preparing for dance competitions And perhaps some of you may know this, some of you may not, but dance was a a very important part of my life in college. Uh, I was a ballroom dancer, a competitive ballroom dancer, and I competed with a team and we competed uh, worldwide competitions in the UK. Uh, I've traveled all throughout Europe and all throughout Australia doing tours with ballroom dance. So that's a very fun stage and part of my life. And I want to tie this into a couple of Buddhist concepts with this podcast episode. Now, you need to know, I know some of you may be listening to this thinking, I am terrified to go out and dance. I have two left feet, or I would never want to be out on the dance floor. That's exactly how I was growing up. I was always afraid to go out and dance. In high school, specifically, I was deathly afraid to go out onto the dance floor But I think more accurately, it's that I was afraid to look like a fool who doesn't know what he's doing. And I think I was afraid to look like a fool because that went against the story that I had of myself, which is the story is that I am someone who does know what they're doing. Ballroom changed all that. Later in life, in college, when I first moved to Utah, I the very first night, actually, that I arrived in Utah, I went to... Um, an elementary school ballroom presentation. The family that I had moved in with, their daughter was was uh, doing a dance in ballroom. And I saw a couple doing a dance and I was mesmerized. Uh, first and foremost, it was it's really cool looking. But second, I remember thinking, where can I meet the, the kind of girls that do this kind of dance? You know, I was just entering college I wanted to meet people, and I I was mesmerized by this. And at the same time, quite intimidated, uh, because, again, I've always been afraid to dance. So I I signed up for ballroom classes in college, and that's that's pretty much it. That was the start of a new phase. All throughout college, I danced, and I ended up eventually being on scholarship for dancing and being able to tour the world thanks to ballroom dance. So ballroom uh, is is a, a fun part of my past, a fun part of my memory. And here's, here's the secret. I'm going to let you in on the secret with ballroom. In ballroom dance, you memorize the steps. So for me to memorize the steps, once I had a, a, a pretty wide 
uh, or a pretty vast catalog of steps that I could do, then you just choreograph a dance routine based on the steps that you know. So pretty quickly, I was able to work my way up to the point where I was dancing competitively, but I was never out there having to rely on my creativity to come up with dance moves. You know, they, these were choreographed routines, whether it was uh, just with my partner competing or as a team doing synchronized uh, choreographed dance steps. So I think that's why I enjoyed it so much because I didn't have to look like I didn't know what I was doing. All I had to do was memorize all these routines and all these dance steps, and then I would look like I really knew what I was doing. So that's that's my experience with dance in college. That's actually how I met my wife was through our circles of friends in throughout the ballroom dance stage of my life. Okay, so enough of that. When I think about life, I think about dance and music because it seems that many of us go through life thinking that happiness or, or contentment, perhaps is a better word, is something that we're always going to achieve tomorrow. Not today. It's always the possibility that it's something I will experience tomorrow or at some future date. But as we all know, tomorrow never comes. We spend our whole lives waiting for life to start. Unfortunately, we've been conditioned to search for happiness or for contentment as if it was something that's out there somewhere else. It's not here, and it's certainly not now. It's uh, something that we've been conditioned in a way that we, we no longer recognize the relationship that contentment has to the here and now. And the contentment and joy that we seek, it's quite frankly hidden in plain sight, often right in front of our noses. And this is why the core teachings of Buddhism and, and mindfulness practice focus so heavily on getting us to experience this present moment, to observe things just as they are right here and right now. What did it take for this moment to arise? It's a question that I bring up often, and when I fully ponder that question, gratitude, generally followed by contentment, is what arises naturally. It's not a fake, uh, pretend-to-be-grateful type feeling. For me, often, that question, what did it take for this moment to arise with introspection almost generates one of those holy cow moments where you realize everything that it took for this moment to arise. Uh, those feelings for me are, are, are pretty genuine and pretty real. And contentment is something that's been with us all along, hiding under the conditioning that it exists somewhere else or at a different time when in reality it's here and it's now. There's a powerful snippet of audio that I want to share with you that comes from Alan Watts. Uh, many of you may be familiar with his work. He's one of my favorites. Uh, it's about life, and it's about music, and in a nutshell, it's about understanding that we don't simply listen to music just to hear that last note. We don't sit and eat a meal just so we can enjoy the very last bite. We don't read a book just so that we can finally read the last page, and certainly we don't watch movies just because of the closing scene. It's always been about the whole process. It's about the ups and the downs, the challenges and the triumphs, the pleasant and the unpleasant, because it's the whole song that matters, the high notes, the low notes, and even those silent pauses in between each note. And our relationship to that song 
is what I like to think of as our dance, or the dance of life. So let me share this little audio snippet with you. This is from Alan Watts. It's only a couple minutes long. In music, though, one doesn't make the end of a composition the point of the composition. If that were so, the best conductors would be those who played fastest. <laughs> and there would be composers who wrote only finales. <laughs> People go to concert just to hear one crashing chord, because that's the end. <laughs> Same way in dancing. You don't aim at a particular spot in the room. That's where you should arrive. The whole point of the dancing is the dance. Now, but we don't see that as uh, something brought by our education into our everyday conduct. We've got a system of schooling which gives a completely different impression. It's all graded. And what we do is we put the child into the corridor of this grade system with a kind of, come on, kitty, kitty, kitty. And yeah, you go to kindergarten, you know, and that's a great thing because when you finish that, you'll get into first grade. And then come on, first grade leads to second grade and so on, and then you get out of grade school, you've got high school, and it's revving up, the thing is coming, and then you're going to go to college, and by Joe, then you get into graduate school, and when you're through with graduate school, you go out to join the world. And then you get into some racket where you're selling insurance, and they've got that quota to make. And you're going to make that. And all the time, the thing is coming. It's coming. It's coming. That great thing, the, the success you're working for. Then when you wake up one day about 40 years old, you say, my God, I've arrived. <laughs> I'm there. And you don't feel very different from what you always felt. And there's a slight letdown because you feel there's a hoax. And there was a hoax. A dreadful hoax. They made you miss everything. We thought of life by analogy with a journey with a pilgrimage, which had a serious purpose at the end, and the thing was to get to that end, success or whatever it is, or maybe heaven after your death. But we missed the point the whole way along. It was a musical thing, and you were supposed to sing or to dance while the music was being played. So I hope that audio clip inspires you the way that it inspires me when I listen to it. I feel like a lot of times we are raised with the mentality of fighting. It's almost like here you are, you're alive, and you're just struggling. You're wrestling with life. And there's almost a, a tone of aggression that comes with it. I see this come out from time to time in anything that we do, whether it's the aggression I feel towards overcoming the ego or the aggression I feel towards being successful in life. You know, there, there's almost a, an aggression, a fight, as you will. And I think a lot of this is conditioned. It's, it's a societal thing. I see this all the time, the mindset of a struggle or a fight, when I'm teaching people new skills, specifically with paragliding. When you, the, the very first step you take when you're going to learn to fly is how to control the wing. And the wing is a giant piece of fabric that you can imagine a kite. If you were to take a kite in the park, you know, if you, if you let the wind take that kite and the string holds the, the kite up in the air, you know, it, it just flies on its own. Well, a paraglider is a very intricate kite. It's attached to all these strings that are attached to you. 
And when the wind inflates that wing over your head, you learn to control it, how to keep it directly over your head rather than flailing off to the left or to the right. But when people are first learning to handle one of these paraglider wings, you watch and what you see is a struggle. You see the fight. And I have to talk to my students quite regularly as they're learning this process to remind them to stop fighting. You're not fighting this thing. And the reason is because a fight against a, a wing in the wind is a fight you'll never win. You can't. The wind is infinitely stronger than, than we are, and you just can't win that fight. So I always tell them, you're not learning to wrestle with the wing or to fight the wing. What you're learning to do is dance with the wing. The wing wants to fly in the wind, and when you develop the little intricacies of, of, of lead and follow, the wing does this, so I do that, and because I do that, now the wing does this, and because the wing does this, now I do that, and that's the name of the game. It's just like a lead and follow dance. Now, if you have any dance experience, the concept of lead and follow makes sense, where you are dancing with a partner, and because of the way that you move your hand or the slight... Uh, way that you twist your wrist or your thumb, your partner knows what move comes next, so they follow. And that's the idea of lead and follow. Uh, I think this concept is, is, is brought up, I've mentioned it before, um, with the idea of the do happening that Alan Watts also talks about in another lecture, where life is like that. It's a do happening. You do something, so something happens, and because something happens, then you do something, and then you're, that's the name of the game, the do happening. I think the lead-follow dance is very similar. At least that's how life makes sense to me. And I think there are some very powerful implications that arise when we think about this switch of the mindset from a struggle to a dance. Think about the, the notion of struggling with your ego. You know, what if it's not a struggle? What if it's I'm dancing with my ego? Or even more powerful, uh, I'm struggling with my emotions. What if it's not a struggle? I'm learning to dance with my emotions. The dance of sadness, the dance of, of happiness, the dance of joy, the dance of gratitude. You know, these are all emotions that we're going to experience because life is like that song. And there are the high notes and there are the low notes. And when you lose a loved one or you're preparing to lose a loved one, you'll be experiencing low notes. And there's there's a dance that can be done with the... I like to think of it as the relationship I have with the song during the low notes. And then there's a relationship I have with the song during the high notes. There's a relationship I have with the song during the pauses and, and those moments of, of silent, uh, of nothingness. And, and for me, that's the relationship of the dance of life. Now, I want to bring to mind another visual here, another concept. This comes from Hinduism. In Hinduism, you learn about Shiva. Shiva is the cosmic dancer. And there's a quote from a book that I want to share with you. The book is called The Telltale Brain by V.S. Ramachandran. And it's a very fascinating book about neuroscience and psychology. And there's this part in the book that talks about Shiva, the cosmic dancer, and this, this idea of the dance of life. And I want to share it with you. If you have the book, you can find this on page 239 and 240 of the book. But the quote, it's kind of a long one. I'm going to share several paragraphs with you. But it goes like this, open quote. In Chennai, Madras, 
There is a bronze gallery in the State Museum that houses a magnificent collection of Southern Indian bronzes. One of its prize works is the 12th century Nataraja. One day, around the turn of the 20th century, an elderly foreigner a gentleman was observing, gazing at the Nataraja in awe. To the amazement of the museum guards and patrons, he went into a sort of trance and proceeded to mimic the dance postures. A crowd gathered around, but the gentleman seemed oblivious until the curator finally showed up to see what was going on. He almost had the poor man arrested until he realized the European was none other than the world-famous sculptor Auguste Rodin. Rodin was moved to tears by the dancing Shiva. In his writing, he referred to it as one of the greatest works of art ever created by human mind. You don't have to be religious or Indian or even Rodin to appreciate the grandeur of this bronze. The very literal level, it depicts the cosmic dance of Shiva, who creates, sustains, and destroys the universe. But the sculpture is much more than that. It's a metaphor of the dance of the universe itself, of the movement and energy of the cosmos. The artist depicts the sensation through the skillful use of many devices. For example, the centrifuge motion of Shiva's arms and legs flailing in different directions, and the way tresses flying off his head symbolize the agitation and frenzy of the cosmos. Yet, right in the middle of this turbulence, this fitful fever of life, is the calm spirit of Shiva himself. He gazes at his own creation with supreme tranquility and poise. How skillfully the artist has combined these seemingly antithetical elements of movement and energy on the one hand, and, e and eternal peace and stable God, if you like, uh, is conveyed partly by Shiva's slightly bent left leg, which gives him balance and poise even in the midst of this frenzy, and partly by his serene, tranquil expression, which conveys a sense of timelessness. In some Nataraja sculptures, this peaceful expression is replaced by an enigmatic half-smile, as though the great God were laughing at life and death alike. This sculpture has many layers of meaning, and in Indologists like Heinrich Zimmer and Ananda Kumraswamy uh, wax lyrically about them. While most Western sculptors try to capture a moment or a snapshot in time, the Indian artist tries to convey cyclic nature of creation and destruction of the universe, a common theme in Eastern philosophy, which is also occasionally hit upon by thinkers in the West. I'm reminded in particularly of Fred Hoyle's theory of the oscillating universe. One of Shiva's right hands holds a tambour, which beats the universe into creation and also represents perhaps the pulse beat of animate matter. But one of his left hands holds the fire and not only heats up and energizes the universe, but also consumes it, allowing destruction to perfectly balance out creation and the eternal cycle. And so it is that they perfectly balance out creation in the eternal cycle. And so it is that the Nataraja conveys the abstract, paradoxical nature of time, all-devouring yet ever-creative. Below Shiva's right foot is the hideous, demonic creature called Apasmara, or the illusion of ignorance, which Shiva is crushing. This is 
What is this illusion? It's the illusion that all of us scientific types suffer from, that there is nothing more to the universe than the mindless gyrations of atoms and molecules, and there is no deeper reality behind appearances. It is also the delusion in some religions that each of us has a private soul who is watching the phenomena of life from his or her own special vantage point. It is the logical delusion that after death there is nothing but a timeless void. Shiva is telling us that if you destroy this illusion and seek solace under his raised left foot, which he points to with one of his left hands, you will realize that behind external appearances there is a deeper truth. And once you realize this, you see that far from being an aloof spectator, here to briefly watch the show until you die, you are in fact part of the ebb and flow of the cosmos, part of the cosmic dance of Shiva himself. And with this realization comes immortality, or moksha, liberation from the spell of illusion and union with the supreme truth of Shiva himself. There is, in my mind, no greater instantiation of the abstract idea of God as opposed to a personal God than the Shiva Nataraja. As the art critic Kumaraswamy says, this is poetry, but it is science nonetheless. Close quote. Again, that's a, a thought, an expression that's shared in V.S. Ramachandran's book, The Telltale Brain pages 239 and 240. What I uh, tried to convey in this podcast episode is uh, the subtle mental shift from thinking life is a struggle, that it's some kind of a, a test or, or some kind of a, a thing that you need to fight against. What if we viewed it as the music of being alive and the dance that we experience to that music? For me, this is a really fun visual I love Alan Watts talking about uh, music and, and, and life, right? Being alive is like the music, the high notes, the low notes, the pauses of silence in between the notes. It's all part of the song. And we're not here just to experience the high notes. We're not here just to avoid those low notes. We're not here just waiting for that final note. We're here for the whole song, the ups and the downs, the pauses and everything in between. And the relationship we have to the music of being alive, for me, is the dance. That's the dance of life. And just like I tell my students when they're learning to fly a paraglider, stop fighting. You're not fighting this thing. You'll never win that. Learn to dance with it. I hope that as we go through life, I hope that as I go through life, this is a concept that I'll never forget. As I'm learning to be a parent of young kids, I'm dancing with that. As I'm learning to be the parent of teenagers, that's a new style of dance. As I learn to navigate the ups and downs of, of daily life at work or dealing with the inconveniences of a flat tire or whatever it is that I'm dealing with, it's a dance. I don't need to fight it. I don't need to fight the emotions that I feel, the thoughts that arise in my mind, uh, the feelings that, that I'm experiencing based on the Tetris pieces that life's throwing at me, it's not a fight. It's not a struggle. It's a dance. And that's what I hope you take away from this specific podcast episode today, is that you are a part of the dance of the entire cosmos. The music that's playing, which I like to think of as the music of, of 
life. We're all experiencing that right now. We're all alive. We're all here. And the dance that we experience is the, is the trick, right? To, to see this as a dance. And just like I see with my students, when they learn to master the art of, of ground handling their wing and they're not fighting it anymore, they, they essentially learn to dance with it, what happens next is a beautiful thing. They learn to fly. They learn to find comfort stepping away from that firm foundation that is the earth. And they find a new playground where there is nothing to stand on. And they're floating, riding the wind, so to speak. And I think that, that to, to me, that's, that's what we can learn to do through this, through mindfulness practice, all these ideas. It's about the dance of being alive and finding comfort and having no firm foundation to stand on. That's, that's where the playing starts. That's where it, it gets to be really fun. Uh, all right. Well, I hope that these concepts and ideas make sense to you. Uh, in a nutshell, what I'm, what I'm saying is stop thinking about this as a, as a fight and start thinking about this as a dance, the dance of life. Try that for the week and see what it does for you, for the relationship you have with your thoughts and feelings and emotions and the circumstances that you experience as you go through life, uh, receiving all those Tetris pieces that, that just come your way. Think of it as a dance and see what that does for you. All right. Well, that's all I have for this specific podcast episode. Thanks, as always, for listening. And until next time.